Hello, Cathedral family. What a beautiful day. This is the day the Lord has made. I will rejoice and be glad in it. God is good. And all the time. Wherever you're at on campus, those watching online, thanks so much for being here this weekend as we're in this series. I have been anticipating this series, praying for this series, believing for this series. I, it's rare that I, talk to, that I don't talk to someone, uh, either someone here at the church or out in the community, that they have not been touched or impacted by someone who's struggling with anxiety or depression. In fact, when I got home last night after church, there was a, a one-hour special on the whole subject that we're dealing with this month, the battle for the mind. And so I'm glad that you're here, whether you're a part of the cathedral family or one of our guests. We believe that this month is going to be a month of hope and healing. Can somebody say amen to that? Amen. And I'd like you to stand with me, please. We have with us a very, very special guest. Uh, in fact, I was over on, uh, well, where, where she's from over in Scotland last weekend. I was over speaking at our sister church in northern England. And uh, they send their greetings, and uh, you know, there were two miracles last weekend that they understood me, amen. <laughs> and the second miracle was that the Raiders won in London last weekend, so anything is possible here at Cathedral of Faith, amen. But Sheila and her husband, Barry, are with us this weekend, and they're getting ready to celebrate their 25th wedding anniversary, and how about a big hand? Yeah. She was an amazing lady. She's a singer, songwriter. Her books, she sold over 5 million books. She co-hosts a television program that is watched by over 100 million people. I heard Sheila speak, it was two or three years ago at our friend Rick Warren's conference, and when I heard her give that message, it just spoke, it spoke to me and my wife. And I thought, if we ever have a chance to uh, do a series like we're doing this month, I'd love to have Sheila come up and share her story with you. And well, I hope that you're ready to receive because God is in the house and he is here to meet us at our point of need. So open up your hearts and give Sheila Walsh a great big Cathedral of Faith. Welcome, welcome, Sheila. Thank you, Pastor Ken. Thank you so much. You may be seated. And for those of you watching online, you're probably seated anyway, so that's good. I am truly honored to be at this church. I... My husband Barry and I were just talking last night about how much we have been impressed and fallen in love with your pastors. I, I, I'm, if you've been here for any length of time, you will know this. But if you're new, I just want you to know there's a pastoral team here who loves you so much, who is committed to health and hope and healing for each one of you. And that is such, such a profound gift. If I am new to some of you, and I'm sure I am, um, my accent, as Pastor Ken said, I was born on the west coast of Scotland, but I thought I'd show you a photo of our family. We have one son, that's our son Christian, 
He's 22. He's a senior at Texas A&M and just a gift, an absolute gift to this mother's heart. And for my husband, we have two daughters. Yep, there they are. Yep, they look just like their father. <laughs> we are blessed. Let me read this couple of verses to you from Psalm 61. It says this, Oh God, listen to my cry. Hear my prayer. From the ends of the earth, I cry to you for help. When my heart is overwhelmed, lead me to the rock that is greater than I. When my heart is overwhelmed, lead me to the rock that is higher than I. That is my prayer and it's my prayer for every single one of you, that you will know that when life feels overwhelming, and if you've lived for longer than 10 minutes, you know that life can be pretty stressful, but we have a rock that we can run to for safety, and he will never, ever leave us. <clears throat> Pastor Ken mentioned that um, some time ago, I spoke at the first Hope for Mental Health. It was really called the, the church. Symposium for the Church and Mental Health um, at Saddleback Church. And I was just, I was thrilled when Kay called and asked me to be part of it, that this conversation was coming inside the church doors, that we were actually talking about something that used to have so much stigma. And so often people didn't want to talk about it. And I know what that is like. So to be there was a gift. And, and also, um, I spoke on the Friday night and my opening line was this. And it might seem a little strange, but I hope as I tell you my story, you'll understand why. What I said was, I'm profoundly grateful for the gift of mental illness because it means I can look into the eyes of someone else who is struggling and say, me too, you are not alone and Jesus is here. He is with us. The light of the world has come into our darkness. It's hope. Hope. I wish, I wish someone had been able to help me understand that when I was younger. Back then, people did not talk about anything to do with any kind of mental illness. And I started off um, in a very, very happy home. My mum and dad, we lived in a small fishing town on the west coast of Scotland. And to have a mum and dad who loved Jesus was such a gift. It wouldn't be so unusual, um, like particularly where we live in Texas now, there's just, there's more churches than there are Starbucks. But growing up in Scotland, we only had maybe less than 2% of our population that even went to church. So many of our beautiful church buildings have been turned into movie theaters or carpet warehouses. So to be born into a family where they didn't just go to church, they loved Jesus, was a gift. I'll be right back. Cheers. Cheers, thanks. But you know, sometimes, sometimes life can take a sharp left turn and nobody warns you that it's coming. Do you remember the movie, The Wizard of Oz? The men are not going to admit that they saw it, but you saw it. And there's that moment at the beginning, before she lands in that wonderful Technicolor world, when, when Dorothy is standing looking out at this bleak plane, and she sings that song that everybody and their grandmother have covered, Somewhere Over the Rainbow. There's a place where every dream that you dare to dream will come true. 
Well, what Dorothy didn't know was it wasn't a rainbow that was heading for her. It was a tornado. Have you ever been there? Just out of nowhere? Something slams into your life and changes the landscape forever and nothing ever looks quite the same again. That's what happened in our family. One almost Christmas time, I had asked my dad, who was my hero. I thought there was no one quite like my father. He was tall and strong and handsome. And I was a real tomboy, so I just, I loved to hang out with my dad. And when I was a little girl, there was quite a recession going on in Scotland. There was a lot of poverty. A lot of people lost their homes. And so often when my dad would be coming home from work, he would see someone by the side of the road and often invite them to come home and they would have a shower, a bath and clean up a little bit and then have a meal with us, have their evening meal with us. And then my dad would share the love of Christ. I love the fact that he lived out his faith. It wasn't a Sunday thing. It was 24-7 on mission. And I loved that. And as a little girl, I remember thinking, when I grow up, I want to be just like my dad. But one night, um, close to Christmas, I'd asked my dad, my dad if I could have a dog for Christmas. And he said, well, honey, I don't know. Because think about it. Your mom's got three of you under seven at the moment. You know, maybe next year. I was like, oh, Dad, please, a wee dog, a three-legged dog, anything you can find. So next night, he came into our bedroom. My sister and I are in our pajamas, and we're ready to go to sleep. And he's holding something behind his back, and he said, it's an early Christmas gift, so I want you to close your eyes and hold out your hands. Well, my sister wouldn't do it, but I did. And the minute my dad placed something in my hands, but by the time I opened my eyes, it had run up the sleeve of my pajamas, and all I could see was a tail, but I thought, it's mine, and I'm giving it a name. And it turned out to be a little, a little dachshund, a little wiener dog, just perfect. But then, within a couple of days, when I woke up, my dad was no longer in the home. He'd had a massive cerebral hemorrhage, and he was now in intensive care and not expected initially to survive. My mom sent out prayer requests through the Billy Graham organization all across Scotland and England and even into the States. Please pray for this father of three that God will spare his life. Well, eventually my dad was able to come home, but he was changed. He, had, he was paralyzed down the left side now and he couldn't speak. It was like, as if all the words were on shelves too high for him to reach. But I remember thinking, well, I can help my dad. I'll learn what he means. I mean, he could make noises and he could point. So I thought, I will just be his right-hand person, which worked until it didn't work anymore. I think the blood clot in my father's brain began to press on an area that affected his personality. And from being this wonderful dad, he became a confusing and ultimately violent stranger in our home. That last time I ever saw my dad on this earth, was the day that my dad tried to kill me. He, I turned just in time to see that he was about to bring his heavy cane down on my skull. And I don't honestly remember if I pushed it or pulled the cane, but he lost his balance. And he hit the ground hard and lay there just, just roaring like an animal. The look in his eyes when I stood over him was one of absolute hatred. And my mom, who'd been in the kitchen, she came out, and when she saw what was happening, she took my brother and my sister and I, and she locked us in a room while she dialed 911. 
We lived in a small village, probably four or five minutes. That's all it took for help to come. But to me, it felt like an eternity as I listened to my dad banging my mom's head off the wall. And I thought, he's going to kill her and we can't help her. Eventually, help came and it took six grown men to carry my dad out of the house that day. He was just screaming. And he was placed, because he was becoming increasingly violent, he was taken to uh, what was called our local lunatic asylum. It's what you'd call a psych hospital these days. But because of his increasing violence, he was placed in the maximum security ward. And all the other men in there were in their 70s and 80s and had completely lost touch with reality. So my mom asked the doctor, when you get him a little stabilized on medication, could you perhaps put him in a unit with some younger men? Which they eventually did, but it was a less secure unit. And on that very first night there, my dad managed to escape. And they found him in the morning. He had drowned himself in the river behind the hospital. And I felt as if I'd brought the house down on my whole family. In those days, you didn't take children to a gravesite or to a funeral. All I vaguely remember is my mom coming home in a black dress with a black hat on. And she took every single picture that my father was in off the walls or off the table. And she put them all in a little brown suitcase, which she locked. And she pushed under the bed. And we never mentioned his name again. My mom was an amazing mom. I think, honestly, she thought, if Sheila wants to start the conversation, I'll let her bring it up. I, I won't bring it up myself. She had no way of knowing the agony that I went through every night and the nightmares thinking, perhaps he's not dead. Maybe he'll come back and finish what he started. Plus, there was nobody. There was nobody left who could answer the one question that I really needed an answer to. What did my dad see in me that made him hate me so much? If you have children, if you work with children, you'll know this. Children are the best recorders of information. You can think they're not listening, they're missing nothing. But children are the poorest interpreters of that information. Children always think it was something they did. I grew up with what I call a profound sense of shame. And this is how I differentiate between shame and guilt. This is not a clinical definition, but it kind of helps me. If I said something unkind to Pastor Ken, I would feel guilty until I could sit down and say, listen, I am so sorry. That was all me. Please forgive me. So if guilt tells me that I've done something, something wrong, then shame tells me I am something wrong. And what do you do with that? You know, it would be amazing if we had time to hear a little bit of every one of your stories and those of you watching, because we all have a story. And perhaps some of the things you went through in your childhood, maybe it wasn't physical violence like mine. Perhaps it was sexual abuse or verbal abuse where you were told, you know, you're worth nothing. I wish you'd never been born. I remember flying out to California one time to speak. And I was reading Time magazine. And there was an article about a very well-known businessman, I mean, hugely successful. And after I'd spoken at the event in Los Angeles, I realized that he was actually, he'd been in the crowd. And he came up to me afterwards and introduced himself. And I said, well, no, of course I know who you are. I actually just was reading an article about you in Time Magazine. And he said, let me tell you what Time Magazine won't tell you. Every night when I lay my head on the pillow, I hear my mother's voice saying, 
I wish you'd never been born. People who say sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me, that is not true. That is not true. When things are spoken over your life, it can do so much damage. And then you begin to identify with that. And one of the reasons I'm here today is to tell you, your history does not dictate your destiny in Christ. Your history does not dictate your destiny. When I was 11, I, I gave my life to Christ. And my mom, who prayed with me, told me something that would be good news to most people. But I heard it differently. She said, Sheila, not only is Jesus Christ your savior and you get to make him Lord of every area of your life, you have a heavenly father watching over you. But I heard that through the broken window of my own experience. And I remember clearly at 11 thinking, I've got one more chance to get it right. Whatever my earthly father saw in me that made him hate me, my heavenly father is never gonna see that. I'm going to be the perfect Christian if it kills me. I mean, I literally went outside and made a vow under the stars. God, if I get it all right, please never stop loving me. You know, when you, go, when you experience that kind of pain as a child, and many of you know what I'm talking about, and you don't know what to do with it, you just kind of push it into the cellar of your soul. And you find some way to go on, some, some mask to wear to kind of dull the pain. Some of us turn to, to food. Either we eat too much or we eat too little, just something we have control over. Some people turn to, to drugs, either street drugs or, or prescription medication. Sometimes people use alcohol just to, to numb the pain. Sometimes as women, maybe men too, we spend too much money on clothes because we think, if I look better on the outside, maybe I'll feel better on the inside. I found the perfect mask to wear and the perfect place to hide. Christian ministry. I mean, think about it. Who's going to come up to me and say, put that Bible down or we're going to have an intervention? No more second kings for you, lady. But God is the only one who knows what's going on inside who knows whether we're serving out of pain or passion, out of a calling on our life or a wound so deep we just don't know where else to hide. You see, when we walk through these doors, this should be the most transparent place on the planet. You know, it should be the place where you get to show up as you really are because nobody is perfect. But so often, that becomes the place where we tell the truth the least. You know, maybe, maybe you're driving to church um, and you have an argument with your husband in the car. And you call him things that are not in the New Testament. <laughs> they may have been in the old, but they didn't make it into the new covenant. And then we get to church and the greeter says, hey, how are you? And you're like, oh, if I was any closer to Jesus, I'd be flying, you know? <laughs> this should be the safe place where we tell the truth. But I didn't know that for so many years. I went to seminary in London to train to be a missionary in India. Then I, God redirected my steps and I ended up working with, with Billy Graham and his crusades. Then I came to America and I was invited to co-host the 700 Club with Pat Robertson. I did that from 1987 to 1992, five years. But here's the truth. Inside, I was still the same scared little broken girl who wouldn't let anybody get close to her in case you saw what my father saw. Do you know it's possible to be very well known and 
desperately lonely. That's how I lived. See, every one of us longs to be fully known and fully loved, but we're so afraid that we're fully known, we won't be loved, so we trade away being known. One of the things that I have discovered in my own walk is that God has seen my movie and he loves me. There's not a single scene, there's not a, a place, that, there's nothing that God doesn't know. And he loves us completely. I would often sit on television and I would read from one of my favorite chapters in the Bible. I love the book of Romans and I love chapter eight. It begins with no condemnation and it ends with no separation. The last two verses, are 38 and 39, and I am convinced that nothing can ever separate us from God's love. Neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither our fears for today nor our worries about tomorrow, not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. No power in the sky above or in the earth below. Indeed, nothing in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing, nothing, nothing. The trouble with me is I knew the words. I didn't understand the weight of the truth that those words contain. And one morning on live television, my worst fear happened. I was so scared that I was just like my dad. And people, when I was growing up, people would say, oh, you're just like your dad. And I think they meant I looked like my dad or I sang like my dad. But what I heard was, there's a crack in your brain. And one of these days, no matter how fast you run, it's going to catch up with you. And on live television, I'm interviewing my guest, first guest of the day. I asked my first question, but she turns the tables on me and says, Sheila, you sit here every day asking us how we're doing. How are you doing? And I wasn't expecting it. And I didn't have time to pull up that wall. Plus, there was such compassion in her eyes. And it was as if she reached in and took the first brick out of the wall. And I collapsed into myself. It was like my life just caved in. I fell apart. I couldn't stop crying. Eventually, they had to throw to a commercial break. And I took off my microphone. And I walked out of the studio. And I locked myself in my dressing room. And as far as I was concerned, my life was over. It was what I'd always feared. I called a friend of mine, a guy called Dr. Henry Cloud. And I said, Henry, I think I'm losing my mind. And he said, no, you're not, Sheila, but you need some help and you need it quickly. By that evening, I was in the locked ward of a psychiatric hospital, same age as my dad. Everything I'd always dreaded had come to pass. But here's what I want you to know. Here's what I want you to hear. Sometimes God will take you to a prison to set you free. Sometimes God will take you, you to a prison to set you free. I'll never forget that first night. I was just, I was devastated. I mean, I couldn't, I could hardly breathe. I didn't even get into the bed. I took off the blanket. I sat in the corner of the room and they said, someone will check on you every 15 minutes during the night. And I realized I was on suicide watch. How do you go from live Christian television in the morning to suicide watch at night? But at three o'clock in the morning, I had an encounter with an angel. I'm never aware of it happening before or since. But at three o'clock, the person who came into my room 
didn't just look in the door, they walked all the way to where I was sitting in the corner of the room with my head on my knees. And when I saw them, I, I looked up. And it didn't look like an angel, looked like maybe a doctor going off duty. But he was holding something which he reached over and he placed on my hands. I mean, something you'd give a child. It was a little stuffed lamb, a little soft toy. And when he walked to the door, he turned around and only said one thing. But it was one of the most life-giving things I've ever heard. He said, Sheila, the shepherd knows where to find you. The shepherd knows where to find you. There is no hole too deep. There is no night too dark. There's no place that we can go where the shepherd doesn't know where to find you. It's beautiful. While I was in the hospital, I, I spent a month, I was diagnosed with severe clinical depression, post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, and they began to peel away all the layers of what I thought made me worthy for God. But you know, I discovered something pretty amazing. I wrote in my journal, I never knew you lived so close to the floor. See, I'm used to worshiping God in his majesty, as we should. But just as we heard earlier from Psalm 34, the Lord is close to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. They'd asked me when I first, my first morning meeting with my psychiatrist, he said, who are you? And I said, Sheila Walsh. And he said, no, not your name, Sheila. Who are, are you? I said, I'm the co-host of the 700 Club. He said, no, I didn't ask for your job title. I asked, who are you? And I said, I've no idea. And he said, I know that, and that's why you're here. But when I left, after a month, he called across the parking lot and said to me, Sheila, who are you? said, I'm Sheila Walsh, daughter of the King of Kings. That is our identity when we have placed our faith in Jesus Christ. The reason I said at that gathering that I'm grateful for the gift of mental illness, we live in a broken world. We all have a story. But so often we keep our story to ourselves because we think, I don't want anyone to think any less of me. But you know what I think? When you've experienced a level of healing, I still take a li my little pill every morning with a prayer of thanksgiving that God has made help available for those of us who need it. Don't let anybody shame you if you need to take medication. It's not your spiritual life. It's your brain chemistry you're fixing. I mean, you don't walk up to somebody wearing glasses and say, where's your faith? Take those off. <laughs> I would be daft. So. But I love the fact that once there's been a level of healing, then we're able, as it says in 2 Corinthians 1, to comfort others with the very same comfort with which we've been comforted. See, I have, I will live with scars, but I now celebrate those scars as tattoos of triumph. Scars are proof that God heals. If our Savior, if our Savior chose to rise from the dead with the marks of crucifixion, why should we hide ours? The only earthly wounds that will live through eternity are the marks of Christ. He's not ashamed of his. Don't be ashamed of yours. Tell your story when you've experienced a level of healing so that God can work through the broken places of your life and bring healing and hope to others. I was in um, London a few years ago speaking at a church called Hillsong and they premiered a song that night. And when I heard the song, I thought, wow, that could have been written for me. 
What I didn't say in the beginning is that night when I drove to the psychiatric hospital, I actually didn't intend to go. I drove down to the ocean, I parked my car and I took my shoes off and I told God I was sorry and I walked into the water until it was up to here and I didn't intend to come out. And the only thing that stopped me that day was the thought of my mother getting one more phone call that somebody else she loved had disappeared under the waves. 20 years on, I'm speaking in Virginia Beach at a conference and I got in late so the drapes were closed. And I woke up the next morning and I threw them open and it caught my breath. I was looking out at the exact spot where I stood 20 years before and walked into the water. And I heard Jesus say, you don't have to go there. I went there for you. You don't have to pay the bill. Bill paid in full. It is finished. It is finished. So I want to... I want to share this song with you and we'll put the lyrics up and if you know it, please feel free to join in. It basically says, because of Jesus, I will rise. This is my revelation Christ Jesus crucified Salvation through repentance At the cross on which he
fear of condemnation by faith I'm justified I will rise I will rise as Christ was raised to life now in of Jesus I rise as you are risen declare your rule and reign my life confess your lordship and glorify your name your word it stands eternal your kingdom knows no end your praise goes on forever and on and on again stand against you no curse assault your throne no one can steal your glory for it is yours alone I stand to sing your praises I stand to testify for I was dead in my sin now I rise I will
I live. Say that with me. I live. Everybody stand with me for just a moment. Let's keep it right here. You know, close your eyes. I'm going to ask Sheila to come and pray. Whether you're watching online, wherever you're at on campus, out in the amphitheater, the coffee shop, the chapel, in the lobby. Well, you're not here by accident or chance. I believe God brought you here this weekend to meet you in this moment. So with everybody's heads bowed and their eyes closed, if you would say, Pastor Ken, that message today, it was for me. But I'm declaring that I will rise. That Jesus is alive and because of Jesus, I live. If that's what you're declaring today, just lift up your hand real high and we'd love to pray with you and for you. Wherever you're at, thank you, Lord. Sheila, would you lead us in prayer? Also in Psalm 34, it says this, those who look to him for help will be radiant with joy. No shadow of shame will touch their faces. You take the, you take the word depressed and you rearrange the letters, you get this, I pressed on. Amen. In Jesus, I pressed on. Father God, how we love you. We don't have enough words in our language to tell you how grateful we are for who you are. Jesus, the fact that you would not live without us, but you came and gave your life so that we can be free. Lord, I pray right now for any of my brothers or sisters who've been struggling under the weight of shame. Lord, by faith, we lay that burden down and we'll choose to rise in you. And if we have to remind ourselves a hundred times a day, we will do that because you think we are worth it. And we thank you. And Lord, for anybody who maybe doesn't even know you, maybe they're watching online, there's power in the name of the Lord. Yeah. You can call out. Scripture tells us, whoever, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Yeah. You just call in the name of Jesus. Father, I pray your blessing over each one here in the powerful, wonderful, magnificent name of Jesus. Amen. Amen and amen. Let's give God praise for who he is and what he's doing in this moment. Hallelujah. Thank you, God. Thank you, God. We are so grateful today. And would you let Sheila know how much you appreciate her being with us this week? And Sheila, thank you for that amazing word.